Hey listeners, welcome to this episode of When Science Makes History. Hey, I apologize for the delay between episodes. I've actually stepped aside for a brief spell with some major family events, some graduate school work that I need to get done, and also some work projects around the house that have captured my time. But thanks for your patience. Today's episode is entitled Into the Arms of Morpheus, which is a common phrase to discuss the pharmaceutical with a similar namesake called morphine. Before being the Schedule II narcotic that we know it as today, morphine in the form of opium and other plant-based products fell under medicinal herbs. From a biochemical standpoint, we are once again discussing a phytochemical. A phytochemical, if you recall, is a plant-based alkaloid that often has some sort of chemical benefit to the plant in either a defensive or propagative sense. As an aside, much has been covered in relation to the fiercely addictive nature of narcotics such as heroin, morphine, and other opioids under the news headlines surrounding the opioid epidemic. While this podcast is only intended to investigate the intersection of science and history, we really aren't looking to delve into the ethical and moral implications of using these pharmaceuticals. That being said, though, we will look at one recent headline surrounding Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the 2007 case regarding OxyContin. Regardless, the use of opioids and the strengths that are being prescribed should give some pause and a measure of caution. They are often a much more concentrated synthetic version of a natural phytochemical. So, stay tuned to this episode surrounding the phytochemical from the opium poppy entitled Into the Arms of Morpheus on this episode of When Science Makes History. Welcome back to this episode of When Science Makes History entitled Into the Arms of Morpheus. In this episode, we'll be looking at the opium poppy and the product found in the latex exudate called morphine. The etymology, or the word origin of terms, has always fascinated me. I tell my students often that science is rather easy because the words tell you the meanings of things. For example, chlorophyll comes from chloro, meaning green, and phyllo, meaning leaf, hence green leaf. We see this in the green gas called chlorine and the thin leafy crust of a phyllo pastry, chlorophyll. Another example can be seen in a complicated word such as metamorphosis, which can be broken down to give its meaning. Meta means about itself, and morph means transformation or change. Basically, the grub form of an insect does a total transformation of itself. Everything about it changes, hence metamorphosis. The grub enters the cocoon, and everything about it changes. We've already mentioned phytochemicals, phyto being from leaf, attached to the word chemical. So, the term morph, meaning form or shape, is going to enter our topic again for today. The Greek god Morpheus is one of the sons of the god of sleep, hypnos. Again, word origin tells us that this is where we get the word hypnosis. Morpheus is the shapeshifter, the one who sends human forms to the sleeper via dreams. Oddly, we're more likely to associate Morpheus with an image of Lawrence Fishburne inquiring if we intend to take the red pill or the blue pill. However, in this discussion, we are covering the drug that is named in homage to the Greek god of shapes, namely morphine. 
The opium poppy has the genus species named Papaver somniferum, which you can pick up the somni prefix indicating sleep. The poppy plant grows to maturity and produces a golf ball sized seed pod that houses thousands of poppy seeds. Yes, these are the same poppy seeds on a bagel or a poppy seed roll. As the plant is still green, before the seed pod is dried out and dropped all of its countless seeds, the pod is scratched or cut, thereby breaking the skin of the pod. The plant counters this wound by leaking a white latex-like sap that is primarily aimed at sealing this wound and protecting the plant from outside invaders. It's quite similar in appearance and purpose to the white liquid from a dandelion. However, there is vast differences between the opium poppy sap and dandelion sap. The extract that leaks out of the opium poppy contains over 20 different alkaloids. Dandelion latex, not so much. Incidentally though, it does have an excellent phytochemical with some recent studies showing that the sap contains a sesquiterpene, lactone, which actually serves as a defense chemical against certain grubs which want to burrow in and feed on the roots. Again, it's a phytochemical produced by the dandelion for protection. Opium poppy latex with its host of alkaloids can be used to easily isolate morphine, codeine, heroin, and oxycodone. Centuries ago, it was discovered that ingesting the latex from the opium poppy, either by eating it or smoking it, had a powerful narcotic effect. Opium itself will remain a topic of another episode, but one of those alkaloids found in the opium paste that is harvested from the opium poppy is morphine. In fact, about 10% of the opium poppy latex by volume is made up of this powerful narcotic. It's one of the most effective painkillers really known to man. It's a narcotic analgesic, and as a narcotic, it is also highly addictive. To keep it simple, morphine has two highly desirable therapeutic effects. One, it stops pain, and two, it induces sleep. Think of a soldier on a battlefield who has stepped on a landmine and lost the lower half of their leg. As horrific as this injury is, the best thing for the body to do while awaiting surgery is to simply relax and slow the body's processes down so blood loss is minimalized, and therefore the risk of shock is diminished. Eh, relaxing's sort of hard to do though with such intense pain and the realization of a missing extremity. It quickly became apparent that morphine was incredibly helpful on the battlefield as soldiers would be given morphine, put to sleep, and then sent off to the field hospital. Morphine became a staple of the Second World War as one and a half cc serrets were placed into medic kits to save lives in battle. While on the topic of battle and opium, many of us as school children recall reciting Canadian poet John McRae's poem In Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row. This actually is the same poppy plant that we're discussing, which incidentally grew in droves in Belgium following the bombing. Come to find out, the lime in the mortar between the bricks of the bombed out buildings was leaching out into the ground following the bombardment and destruction of those buildings, which in turn provided the necessary fertilizer, which in turn caused those dormant poppy seeds to sprout. The bloom of so many poppies undoubtedly inspired the poem, but years later those same fields lie dormant of poppies. It had nothing to do with dying soldiers, yet the poppy plant is still a century-old floral depiction of young lives cut short in battle. However, 
let's get back to morphine. One of the key extracts as mentioned from the opium latex is morphine. Morphine was first isolated from sap in 1803 by a German apothecarist or druggist as we call today a pharmacist whose name was Friedrich Surturner. Surturner who never formally trained as an apothecary ended up making his own lab equipment and also had no testing subjects so he did the most logical thing. He tested the drug on himself. Essentially, Friedrich Surturner was the first to experience the power of morphine and as a result, unfortunately, became the first addict. He actually pleaded not to mass produce this drug due to its addictive nature. Yet Merck, the pharmaceutical company, saw the value and began mass producing it. Morphine also became the first drug to be intravenously injected. It was believed at the time that injecting directly into the bloodstream would divert the drug around the addictive response. Morphine's quite fascinating in its complicated, albeit rather simple, mode of action. In the simplest form, morphine puts a roadblock up for roots to the brain from the body. In essence, the soldier who lost their foot from stepping on a landmine receives pain messages which are relayed to the brain, which in turn results in panic, heart rate increase, focus on the injury, and other physiological and psychological facets that aren't really helpful to long-term survival. Morphine simply gets in between the pain messages coming from the lower limb loss and doesn't let those messages get to the brain. It's sort of a, hey brain, I know this looks really bad, but we're all good down here. Just go offline a little and hey, while you're at it, why not take a nap? It's okay. We got this. Go rest for a bit, which is exactly what happens. Pain messages are blocked, sleep is induced, and the patient just may survive providing the wound isn't fiercely traumatic. You can easily see how such a drug would be really useful on the battlefield. From previous episodes, you may also recall that Bayer tried to cross this morphine with aspirin in an acetylation reaction which resulted in the production of diacetylmorphine, which we know as the illicit street drug called heroin. To make matters even worse, the addictive nature of morphine, that was fast becoming apparent, actually caused Bayer and company to encourage the use of their new pharmaceutical heroin to substitute morphine as it was supposed to be less addictive. It was literally trading one fiercely addictive narcotic for a even more fiercely addictive narcotic. In a more complicated version, morphine binds to opioid receptors in our brain, thereby blocking pain signals from the body. It also causes the release of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that makes us feel good. There's four big ones, endorphin, oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. By way of example, our bodies produce feel-good molecules called endorphins. These endorphins also bind to the opioid receptors, yet their production is sort of regulated by our stimuli. When our stimuli make us feel good, they are naturally released. Yet there are also synthetic endorphins that can be introduced into our system. One of those synthetic endorphins is morphine. When these synthetic opioids enter our bodies, our bodies kind of stop producing the normal amount of endorphins and there's sort of an overabundance. The body also starts to develop a training of the reward system, which we refer to as addiction. It craves more of the good feeling molecules, regardless of if it's an opium molecule, a nicotine molecule, or even a like on social media. I realize that the whole explanation provided is somewhat simplified, but the idea is morphine is a synthetic feel-good molecule that blocks pain and induces sleep. Today, Little of this morphine is derived from the opium, but it's rather synthesized in the laboratory and 
It's used medicinally to manage moderate to severe pain in patients and is also used in end-of-life care. When we come back, we'll look at the history of morphine and a particularly interesting facet involving, believe it or not, the woman's right to vote. Hey, listeners, just a quick word of thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of When Science Makes History. I trust you're enjoying these podcasts and they're filling you in on the unique connections that science, serendipity, and history all have in common. While I'm not a fan of social media, I do recognize the importance that these platforms have on sharing podcasts such as this. So please like us on Instagram and be sure to tell your friends about this podcast. When Science Makes History can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the topics that we are covering. Welcome back to this episode of When Science Makes History, entitled Into the Arms of Morpheus. We've paused a good deal on the science of morphine and its opium derivation. Let's now look at some of the fascinating history surrounding morphine. Morphine, when mixed with scopalamine, a travel sickness drug, which we probably know as Dramamine, induces a type of trance-like sleepy stupor referred to as twilight sleep. It's a painless sleep that does not involve the loss of consciousness. When it comes to painful experiences, none can rival, so I'm told, the birth of a child. Present at my wife's side for all four of our children, she opted to decline pain medication, admirable, and one I have no desire to compare stories with. I have great respect for her pain tolerance. However, the pain of childbirth at one time was a rather controversial topic. In the early 1800s, some believed that relieving the pain experienced during childbirth was contrary to what God had intended in the curse that he gave to Eve. To provide relief through this pain-filled experience was to sort of thwart God's intent and circumvent his curse. I'm kind of convinced it was likely a group of men translating the passages on that one. Had a woman been able to interject her thoughts, it may have been a historically different thought process that prevailed altogether. At this time, stable and safe anesthesia was still a ways off, albeit Queen Victoria was known to have been given chloroform for the birth of her eighth child, and a move was on the rise to give women a voice. In that first wave of feminism, the right to vote and the right to investigate pain-free child delivery were the topics of most importance. Here enters morphine, with a tinge of scopalamine. Scopalamine was given in a series of small doses that allowed the women to forget pain and experience slight drowsiness, while a dose of morphine was also given to block the pain. This concoction induced something referred to as twilight sleep. This sleep allowed the safe delivery of the infant while the mother experienced little pain. And when she awoke, she was able to forget the pain due to the amnesiac effect of scopalamine. Admittedly, it's rather odd to refer to this practice as being, quote, controversial, end quote, as we consider that to be just good medical care today. But you have to recall that at one time, the rights of women to vote was also just as controversial. This topic saw suffragists and women's rights advocates joining forces to promote the right to twilight sleep and the right to vote. In 1870, Elizabeth Stanton addressed a crowd and argued that the laws of nature, as in science, could be used to secure health and happiness for herself and other women in the process of child delivery. Her plea for twilight sleep during delivery, joined with the women's suffrage movement, helped later pave the way for pain-free child delivery and women's voting. Who knew morphine would enter into the childbirthing process? 
It certainly makes sense that a drug that blocks pain and induces sleep would be helpful to that end, yet we understand the addictive nature means it's not presently used for that purpose. As with many things, the equilibrium between being able to synthesize a plant derivative and the capacity to mass produce that item for profit tilted out of balance. In the late 1990s, Purdue Pharmaceutical gained FDA approval for a new timed-release painkiller called OxyContin. In 2001, Purdue saw profits of $1.45 billion from selling OxyContin, and those numbers only grew over the next decade. Yet a cataclysmic spiral of abuse ensued that opened up a black market for these pills, saw illegal street sales, saw pharmacies being robbed, and all the other various headlines we recall hearing during the opioid epidemic. OxyContin picked up a variety of names such as Oxy and Hillbilly Heroin after the trail of destruction particularly devastating throughout the Appalachian and Ohio Valley areas. By 2004, OxyContin had the moniker of the most prominent painkiller in use in the United States with over 3 million users. Then came the countless accidental overdoses from illicit use. This is particularly alarming as the mode of action is akin to opium. OxyContin suppresses the breathing rate, which suppresses the blood pressure as well as brain oxygen, and the patient slowly dies from respiratory failure. In 2012, it was estimated that someone died from a painkiller overdose every 19 minutes. Dr. Paul Offit, in his book Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, outlines the rise and fall of this drug in a detailed manner that is captivating reading. I highly encourage you to check out his work. By 2016, it was apparent that this was indeed an epidemic as opioid overdoses were the leading cause of death in young adults. According to the United States Department of Justice, on November 24, 2020, Purdue pleaded guilty to fraud and kickback conspiracies aimed at boosting profits from opioid drugs and agreed to pay a $3.5 billion fine, the largest ever levied against a pharmaceutical manufacturer. In essence, they flooded the market with opioids, thwarted government regulations, and thereby caused countless addictions and deaths. There's a reason the government regulates certain products with good cause. We don't seem to be able to moderate ourselves when the profits and pleasure are on either side of the balance. So, who knew that morphine and women's suffrage were connected? Yet, there you have it. Opium, poppies, Flanders, Field, Twilight, Sleep, Oxycontin, and Into the Arms of Morpheus on this episode of When Science Makes History.